This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Seth Jones, who is the senior vice president, Harold Brown chair, director of the International Security Program and director of the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Roger and Seth talk about Seth's book, A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War struggle in Poland. Dr. Seth Jones, welcome to Reaganism. Uh, It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, we were just talking before uh, we went live on the show. Uh, We're here, of course, to discuss your book, A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War struggle in Poland. But before we go there, tell us about what you do today at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm one of CSIS's senior vice presidents, and I direct the international security program at CSIS, which essentially is the CSIS program that covers uh, defense and national security issues from missile defense to nuclear issues to irregular warfare to intelligence. We cover it all, and we focus primarily on research and analysis. So fun stuff, fun times to be doing it. Well, we'll talk about your book and then perhaps we'll lean on the expertise in your work at CSIS and and discuss a little bit what's going on in today's news. But first, talk about the book, A Covert Action. Uh, Here at Reaganism, we are, of course, interested in this book because of the way it features President Reagan and this kind of chapter that, as you share with the readers, is is somewhat uh, less well-known, perhaps wasn't well-known at all until... Uh, you wrote this book, Save Some of Those Spies in the CIA. How did you come about writing a, this book on the struggle in Poland and the Reagan administration's involvement? Well, Roger, it's an interesting question. Uh, I had stumbled across in, the, in a, a number of uh, places, uh, for example, one of Bob Gates's books, uh, that there was a covert action program authorized by Ronald Reagan uh, to provide assistance to solidarity in Poland. Uh, the challenge is there was almost nothing publicly about it, save for that Gates uh, uh, brief comments and a few other places, no details. And there was a lot of speculation about what had happened. Uh, I got verification uh, through a number of sources that it actually was a program. It was a covert action program by the CIA And so I started to really at the Reagan Library and in interviews with uh, a number of Reagan administration officials started to recognize that there was actually an incredible story here and one that dovetailed actually with Reagan's authorization and support for the CIA uh, to provide assistance to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Those were weapons. In this case, it was printer cartridges. So it was a very different kind of program but one that was uh, also targeted at the Soviets and their sphere of influence, something that, you know, previous administrations really were reluctant to do. So let's set the scene a little bit for the book. Uh, You're you're playing detective here, trying to piece together uh, a story that was not told for national security reasons, right? And so to define a little bit what that means, you talk about a covert action program, explain what that means. And then you reference that it's to support solidarity in Poland, Lech Walesa, and, 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 and that group. Um, 
set the scene in terms of what was going on in Poland at the time, 1981. Uh, you have the Polish government basically or essentially uh, issuing martial law there, and the Reagan administration determines it needs to get involved, and it turns to the intelligence community to get involved. So to take it from there and explain the consequence significance of that move, Seth. So what had happened up to that point is that there was a growing labor union, which was starting to feel a little bit like a democratic opposition movement in uh, Poland, Solidarity, led by the Solidarity leader Lech Wałęsa. And in August of 1980, even before then, there had been what was called the Gdansk Agreement, which had essentially legalized solidarity. But over the course of 1981, it became clear that this was more than just a labor union in the shipyards and the mines of Poland, uh, uh, in the mines of uh, uh, across Poland. It was increasingly an opposition movement. Um, and it was starting to feel like there were cracks forming in both Polish and then Soviet control within Poland. So uh, CIA reports across uh, uh, 1981 are indicating the likelihood of a Soviet invasion. I mean, this starts to feel like Czechoslovakia and Hungary. The challenge the Soviets face, we now know from the archives, is that uh, it, it would have been very difficult probably disastrous for the Red Army to invade along with other Warsaw Pact countries in Poland, because now you have 10 million members of Solidarity. And these are blue collar workers in shipyards and mines, and they were going to come out swinging if, the, if the, they hated the Soviets. So what, the, what, the, uh, uh, what Moscow does is it pushes the uh, Yaroslavsky government to essentially declare Solidarity illegal and banned in the country, and then uh, to push the Polish government to send tanks onto the streets, so to declare martial law. So this is when the Reagan administration has to make a decision on what, if anything, does it do? Does it, as in many previous U.S. administrations, does it just uh, simply sit and watch? And I think what what's interesting in the archives is Reagan cannot let that happen. Hmm. Uh, he he wants to move. So this is where we get options for what to do. Talk about that shift, because it's it, context did a great job of developing in the book. Reagan, President Reagan, his mindset coming into office as somebody who was just violently anti-communist, passionately in favor of of helping the plight of free people, particularly people right seeking political freedom and religious freedom. You know, the, the plight of, of captive nations, and then his team. Uh, you do a great job profiling CIA director Bill Casey, who, of course, was a key player in the intelligence community, and, and, and in this case, the CIA and the co covert side, getting this, uh, this assignment. Yeah, I, what's interesting here is, um, is how Reagan thinks differently President Reagan thinks differently and his administration from a number of previous administrations. Back at the end of World War II at Yalta, uh, FDR had essentially, and I think most U.S. presidents after that accepted this, ceded Eastern Europe to the Soviets. It was their sphere of influence. We were not, for the most part, going to meddle. But it's pretty clear when the administration comes in, the Reagan administration comes in, that it has a very different perspective 
on Eastern Europe, in part because the Soviets are meddling everywhere around the world, including conducting what they call active measures, uh, covert influence inside of the United States. So understandably, if the Soviets aren't uh, distinguishing between geographic locations across the globe, why should we? So Eastern Europe is fair game, especially in countries like Poland, where where uh, there is an opposition movement, there is a democratic yearning. You know, it's interesting, in December of 1981, this is Reagan's public speech uh, to support solidarity. Uh, just after martial law, he likens uh, solidarity itself to, uh, and Poland at that time, to where the United States was uh, in the uh, Revolutionary War period. These were people that were, that were really frontiers, uh, frontiersmen. Uh, in in building democracy in their country, and they needed assistance. This is not the time to uh, let them hang out to dry. This is the time where they needed support, and and that message was certainly supported by, among others, Bill Casey, a CIA director that was very offensive-minded in conducting actions in the Soviet sphere of influence. So all of those things really came together for the the eventual support to solidarity. One thing you do in the book at explaining Reagan's thinking on this, willingness to go on the offensive, and actually the speech you just referenced where he explains to the world how he views uh, the plight of solidarity, you pair it with testimony I was not familiar with, 1941. President Reagan at the time is... You know the, the the chair of the Screen Actors Guild, and he's brought into the Congressional Committee for Un-American Activities. This is before McCarthy uh, famously takes that over and 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 you know carries that committee in excess. But that testimony that Reagan gave, why don't you give us context of what he was doing then, and 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 what you do, just sort of being explicit, simply saying what Reagan says to the world in 1981. He was saying to the world in 1941, and almost you can draw a line between the two. Did I get that right, Seth? Yeah, I, I think what's what's important is you see a long historical support by President Reagan for democracy, uh, for support of democratic movements uh, across the globe. And I think you see that in the early stages of, of his career. You see it during his General Electric speeches. You see it uh, during his uh, his time as governor of the state of California. And you see it uh, during his time as president here is he thinks it is in our nation's fabric that we are a country that was built on freedom of speech, electing our officials, capitalist market, and that that means supporting those endeavors for people that want to do it uh, anywhere in the world, whether it's the U.S. or overseas. So I think it's a theme that we see with President Reagan in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and then here into the uh, 1980s. So, so the point that is that you know the fact that he was willing to take this risk, go on the offensive. Actually, there's there's kind of a historical a precedent for it. Yeah, set of you know thinking and 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 almost public, really public record where where he would be oriented that way. And what's so interesting about this, before we go into the the, the program itself, is you you at the outset of our conversation noted the distinction between this program and and. <laughs> You know, Afghanistan, which you're expert in, obviously the author of In the Graveyard of Empires, uh, many uh, know you through through that uh, highly celebrated work. Um, this was not about providing weapons 
right? This is not about, you know, the United States involving itself in, in a long war in Afghanistan. This is a different way for the U.S. to influence and support people seeking freedom around the world, even a captive nation behind the Iron Curtain, which, which is significant because here it's not just what we're trying to do, but the way we're seeking to achieve it. This was not about providing weapons to a uh, foreign opposition movement struggling against its oppressive government. That was the case in Afghanistan. That's what was needed at the time in Afghanistan. It was a war. It was a civil war. Uh, in the case of Poland, it was not military at that point. There were, of course, troops uh, but in, but, uh, that the Poles had deployed into the streets of uh, cities like Warsaw and Gdansk. But it was not really a war, and so sending in weapons uh, would not have been appropriate. At what solidarity and, so, and solidarity didn't even want it. Solidarity was at its core. It was a political movement. What it needed was an ability to communicate its messages, to try to level the playing field in a in a country that the state controlled the media apparatus. Uh, it needed help in getting the message out by newspapers, magazines, journals, books radio programs, and even television. So really, it was about an information campaign that Solidarity needed help in, and that's exactly uh, what this did. And actually, what's interesting is the timing was good, because as the Reagan administration is putting together its national security vision through, for example, National Security Decision Directives 32 and 54, uh, what the administration does is uh, as with many, it highlights the key instruments of American power, the military, uh, diplomats, but it also elevates the importance of information uh, as a key instrument of American power. After all, President Reagan saw this struggle as one in part as an ideological one. So it makes a lot of sense then that if you're viewing this competition in part as ideological, that part of that is that's part of the battlefield uh, within which you're waging uh, competition. The battlefield of ideas, and, and President Reagan knew the power of communication, certainly, and how subversive it could be for those who are trying to keep those ideas out of their closed societies. Uh, all right, so here we are. We're in the Reagan administration. Uh, you have, obviously, President Reagan. You have Director of the CIA, Casey. You referenced the National Security Decision Director, Richard Pipes. Maybe you'll talk about him. And they have decided they're going to go forward with a, a covert program called QR Helpful. I don't know if that's the way you, you, you reference it. But tell us about what QR Helpful is. And, and, of course, you kind of uncover this through a reference in Bob Gates's memoir, first memoir, and then kind of playing a little Sherlock Holmes was able to kind of unpack it through this kind of array of conversations and ultimately chatting with, with those in the agency. So... Talk to us about what Cure Helpful uh, aimed to do, and, and based on uh, what you've just shared, it seemed to be effective and successful. Yeah, so what QR Helpful, that's the cryptonym that the CIA used uh, for the program. Now, as a covert action program, what it essentially means is uh, it is an authorized program uh, with a presidential finding, so signed by the President of the United States, briefed to specific members of Congress but publicly deniable. Uh, the U.S., including the U.S. president, can publicly deny uh, that the U.S. is engaged in that activity. It's 
really designed to hide the hand of the U.S. government. It's kind of a remarkable thing where as a matter of law, the Congress and an executive through passing a law basically said there's certain activities that, you know, are lawful and you can tell the world you're not doing or denying. Yes. Yes. And the reason you would do that is because by obviously by publicly acknowledging that you're doing it, it may uh, undermine the activity you're trying to do and certainly undermine uh, the organization, state or not state entity, in this case, solidarity in Poland, that you're trying to support. Tying the U.S. hand at that time directly to solidarity would almost certainly have led to the crippling of the organization. So in November of 1982, uh, President Reagan approves, signs a the covert action program to aid solidarity, what's called QR Helpful. The over the uh, uh, the way the uh, covert action program is designed is that it's it's designed to provide money and non-lethal equipment, so no arms to uh, moderate Polish opposition groups, including Solidarity. Um, the idea is to work through surrogates, not directly through Solidarity members, which we'll get to in a moment. But the goals, and I think this is important to understand, were very limited. It's to aid the organizational activities of solidarity and other opposition groups to improve their ability to communicate with the Polish people inside and outside of Poland, as well as a broader international audience, and to put more pressure on the Polish government led by President Jaruzelski to ease the repressive measures and to allow uh, more democratic movements to operate inside the country. It was specifically not, and this was debated, not to overthrow the government. So its goals were very limited to allow basically the grassroots initiatives of democracy to start to form. And that's it, You know, no weapons, no overthrow of the government, very limited in its approach. That program is authorized. The money really starts flowing in 1983. So give me a sense of the scale in terms of dollars and people dedicated uh, to executing QR Helpful. The operation was actually relatively small, and it wasn't intended to actually be long-term in nature. It was about $20 million over less than 10 years, which is about $40 million or so in uh, today's dollars. What was interesting is by the mid to late 1980s, QR Helpful and Support to Solidarity uh, was really meant to be supplanted with overt funding, for example, from the National Endowment for Democracy. So the initial goal was really to help uh, without the public hand of the U.S. visible, aid solidarity and let bigger dollar amounts eventually uh, uh, provide that assistance. So, 20 million or so at that time, which is actually a relatively small amount. Yet, impact was was surely felt. Let's talk about some of the other the people involved here, uh, both in the broader struggle uh, in Poland and and helping solidarity. Uh, as well specifically uh, within this uh, covert program. Talk to us about the personality, like Valenzo, um, the need for this, how much did it actually help him and others in Solidarity get the world, word out? How big was Solidarity, in it, and did it grow in the years that followed in terms of uh, that union and then uh, the larger movement? Solidarity around the time of martial law was about 10 million members. Wow. And uh, but but the challenge when when uh, Jaruzelski put Polish tanks onto the street, 
uh, was that uh, senior members of Solidarity were arrested, uh, that the uh, uh, efforts to publish newspapers, uh, radio programs were all banned. So there was a real effort to crush uh, the movement. And so for Lech Wałęsa, who was under house arrest, uh, this was a very difficult period. The organization was really struggling to um, get information out to the Polish population and was, was starving of money. And so what ends up happening is I talked to, I, I talked to uh, uh, Richard Malzahn, who ran the program out of Langley, and then a range of CIA case officers like Celia Larkin that were based out of Europe who worked directly with uh, individuals on the ground was that um, it's kind of an interesting way to do this. Uh, the U.S. leveraged already existing what you might call rat lines, which are essentially black market smuggling routes into Poland. Uh, in some cases, they would go from France through West Germany into East Germany and eventually into Poland. Some cases, they might actually go through Baltic Sea uh, by uh, through through perhaps Sweden and then make it into uh, Poland's northern coast. So it could be by truck, could be by boat, could be by uh, other venues. And the CIA identified some of the best smugglers who are already getting uh, uh, banned material, or in some cases actually licit material into Poland, and then um, identifying the key types of uh, products that Solidarity needed, leaflets, um, posters, like poster boards, uh, offset presses, Xerox machines, duplicators, silkscreen frames, typewriters, reams of paper, ink and ink cartridges, and would place them uh, generally inside of hidden compartments in trucks. And then they'd get loaded on in countries like France and eventually make their way uh, into Poland to their final destination. So these were really interesting. It's amazing that those things are, are you know, you listen to now and it, and it sounds so innocuous, but this was contraband. This is the type this of- This was contraband. Exactly what it was. This is the type of stuff was. that, you know, Yaroslav and, and the, the Polish government and the Soviets were like, could undermine us. It's it's almost, it's it's just somewhat, sounds shocking. It Well, it, 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 not surprisingly, the KGB and Polish intelligence spent vast amounts of energy trying to identify uh, the the contraband coming in. And they had strong suspicions, never actual proof that uh, the CIA was behind some of this uh, contraband. It wasn't behind all of it, but it was behind a chunk of it. But you know, the way the CIA set this up, the truck might get loaded in Paris. By the time it got to Poland, it may have actually been unloaded and loaded six or seven different times. If it went by boat, even more complicated. So by the time it got to Polish um, soil, whether it was by by uh, truck or boat, uh, there was you know the people involved in bringing it over. They had no idea where its origins were from. They were just bringing, in some cases, contraband material in. So it, its origins were just not clear at all. And this was material that the CIA wasn't producing. It was produced in Europe or other locations. So there were no fingerprints on any of this. Really quite an impressive approach in how to do this. And solidarity, you go through this in the book, what was their openness to getting support from the CIA? And 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 how, how did, because there was a lot of division and debate within solidarity in terms of how aggressive they should be, what they should be asking for, as you might expect. I mean, 10 million 
people, but they didn't all kind of see eye to eye in terms of what the end state they were seeking and or 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 the strategy to get there. Well, I am not aware in talking with a, a, a range of case office, CIA case officers, that there were actually any meetings uh, as part of Cure Helpful between the CIA and members of Solidarity. So, and I spoke to a range of Solidarity members, uh, uh, and what they essentially said is, uh, what most of them said is something along the following lines, which is, we were getting a, a lot of assistance from outside of Poland. We suspected some of it because we heard this through uh, the rumor mill that it may be coming from the Central Intelligence Agency. We didn't know, and at the end of the day, it didn't really matter that much because um, we were getting material that we desperately needed to run our printing presses for pamphlets, leaflets, magazines, to run our radio programs, to break into television. So at the end of the day, it just it all came together and we couldn't disaggregate. We didn't know. We never met with. There was never any coordination. I mean, in a way, it was a little bit like the support uh, the Catholic Church was giving solidarity in Poland. It was wasn't necessarily done um, uh, in, in one sort of uh, giant centralized approach. It was done piecemeal, hidden by various priests in churches across Poland and elsewhere. And so, in that sense. Uh, all all solidarity really knew at the end of the day was it was getting assistance from unknown quarters and and that's all um, they, that's all they needed to know and, and, that, and they knew what to do with it once they got it that's right so i think that's kind of that's that's sort of the quintessential end of it which which is kind of an elegant way to run a covert program right i mean you know that and one that could be successful from the standpoint they weren't building the machine they weren't driving the machine they were simply adding fuel to it that's exactly right. And, and, and really, the primary contribution from uh, the CIA was money. Uh, they weren't, in most cases, even buying most of the material. They were providing money for what Solidarity really needed to run its own program. You reference the Catholic Church, of course, even during the communist era. You know, the Yaroslav and other leaders in Poland knew that you can never uh, remove the Catholic Church uh, from Poland, that communism and 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 the, the church would have to both be present in Poland, and one couldn't displace the other. Um, and the role of John Paul II, the Pope, was highly consequential. Take a minute just to talk about the church's involvement, the Pope's involvement, and and you capture this in the book, you know, the Reagan uh, Pope relationship, certainly vis-a-vis -vis Poland. So there, there. It's interesting in the uh, in the at the end of the Cold War late 1980s and early 1990s, there is an increasing amount of uh, activity, literature, books that are published on the role of the Catholic Church in Poland, including the Reagan administration. And as I found, the deeper I got into this uh, work on uh, the Cure Helpful program, is there were, there were actually a lot of incorrect, what I would call myths. And that is that there was this broad cons conspiracy, this plotting, between U.S. intelligence agencies and uh, the Catholic Church to provide assistance to solidarity. Now, at one level, there was an enormous, um, enormously important relationship between President Reagan and the Pope. Uh, they there was a mutual understanding. They both survived assassination attempts. There was a there was a strong support for democratic movements. The Pope himself was was uh, Polish, 
So there's a very strong sympathy for democracy in Poland. And there were a number of key Reagan administration officials uh, that were Catholic, including uh, the CIA director. And so there were meetings that took place. There was strong sympathy, I would say, at the strategic level to aid solidarity and to talk in ways that supported democracy in Poland. But when it actually came to the role of the Central Intelligence Agency in developing a covert action program and then taking the material and getting it into the hands of solidarity members across Poland, uh, the Catholic Church did not play any meaningful role. It was largely a CIA program. There were some elements of British intelligence, MI6, help there, but it was primarily a CIA program. Um, there, there were a couple of examples where um, Catholic uh, uh, officials, generally priests, uh, did bring money into Poland as part of QR Helpful. I strongly doubt they had any idea in those instances where that money would come from, uh, that it was actually coming from the CIA and that it had come from case officers. But they were bringing it as part of what many priests were doing, uh, and that was supporting elements of solidarity. So there certainly were some conspiracy theories, I would call them, and myths about this sort of grand bargain between Langley and the Vatican. Uh, it turns out that in a program like this, uh, same sort of strategic direction, but the tactics were done separately. Give us a sense of uh, Director Casey's involvement. He, the outset, he was supportive. You, we talked about that earlier, but you're, you know, it's a $20 million program. Um, there's a lot of big things going on in the context of the Cold War while QR Helpful is being executed. Did this have a special focus on the part of the director? Obviously, critical in terms of getting the finding approved and getting the president to sign off. That doesn't happen without the director getting involved. But sustained involvement, was that something that um, if he were here today, he would he would say, oh, yeah, I know what that program was, and that oh, was impactful? Definitely. Uh, and definitely, in part because, you know, I spoke to his successor, um, uh, Bill Webster, who was very involved in the program. In fact, wrote a blurb on the back of the uh, softcover book on the program itself. So I, I would characterize it as this, is, uh, is Bill Casey, based on the degree that we can uh, see this from individuals that participated in the discussions at the White House at that time, and what we can find both in the Reagan archives and that at Hoover Institution in the Casey papers, is that Casey was, was, uh, was an important component, probably the important driver of getting the program authorized and supporting it at the White House level. Now, when it came to the execution of the program, that's when this came under the oversight of the Soviet East European branch of the Special Activities Group in the International Activities Division of CIA. So on a day-to-day -day basis- to the agency and the White yes. House is going to- as appropriate as hand off from the operational piece. They got in trouble later on for not doing that. In exactly. this case, it was left to the professionals. Exactly. So the day-to-day -day management of the program, uh, Casey would have gotten periodic briefings and updates on the program, but uh, you know was involved in lots of different things. But his role was particularly critical in supporting it from the beginning. Yeah, again, that, that, that support from the president and making the case uh, inside uh, the White House.
one more, and then we'll we'll kind of go to things you're working on at CSIS and issues of the day, security issues day, drawing your expertise. Again, we're with Dr. Seth Jones, author of A Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and the Cold War Struggle in Poland. Um, Radio Free Europe. You profile Radio Free Europe uh, throughout the book. I think uh, Americans probably look at this as uh, perhaps a Cold War relic, uh, maybe even, you know, think, well, how could, how could just uh, kind of radio, Western radio be that impactful and, you know, behind the Iron Curtain? You demonstrate that, you know, this really did make a difference in the minds and the hope of those uh, within the captive nations. Talk about that for a minute and its place in the story. Well, I, I think there, there was a real recognition, as we noted earlier, uh, from President Reagan that, that the contest with the Soviet Union, the, the competition was to a great degree an ideological one, a war and a competition of ideas between democracy, freedom, capitalism, and uh, Marxism, Leninism, communism. And part of what, um, what uh, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were designed to do is to level the playing field within Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in countries that had state-controlled media. So if you were living in Poland at that time, all the access to, to information from your own country was state-controlled. So it was gonna give you a uh, warped interpretation of reality, particularly as countries like Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany struggled economically, struggled politically, and struggled in a number of other areas. And so what Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty did, among with others, BBC, um, for example, was they beamed broadcasts. There was a bit of a cat and mouse game between uh, the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact countries and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and others to, uh, to try to jam the broadcasts to broadcast that information into, um, into Eastern Europe so that individuals could get alternative sources of information. And what I found, this is, and this is really important, is that members of Solidarity I talked to, including uh, Lech Fowenza, the head of Solidarity, religiously listened to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, as an important source of truthful information about what was happening elsewhere in the world, what was happening in Poland. And without that, they would not have had the access to, uh, to information other than what their government wanted them to hear. And so that, to me, was really the importance of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. It provided a light, really, for individuals in those countries uh, to, to find out information that they weren't getting from their governments. And getting that information, Seth, as, as the story bears out, gives them gives them kind of that shot in the arm, that confidence that, that what they're pursuing and doing is having an impact, that they indeed have leverage over the Polish government, that the Soviet Union is kind of blinking, right, and that the West is behind them. Those were all things that they could have and did indeed glean from, from those broadcasts. Without it, they might have made different strategic decisions or been less confident. Absolutely. And, you know, people can ask questions like, were programs like the one we're talking about, Cure Helpful, were they impactful at all? And I think, you know, the evidence suggests strongly, yes, for a couple of very brief reasons. First, 
QR Helpful was the single largest source of external aid to solidarity based on the available evidence. The numbers were, again, $20 million in uh, in in 1980 dollars, about $40 million today, but it was larger than anything else Solidarity was getting. Second, that money was going directly to magazines and radio programs and then even television broadcasts uh, that were critical uh, critical sources of information for, for Solidarity. Third, we know that the Soviet and Polish authorities spent significant amounts of time and energy and resources trying to intercept it. Uh, they would not have done that had they not been concerned. But I think you put all those things together, what you what this strongly suggests is that particularly in the early stages after martial law, 1983, 1984, 1985, uh, until we really get large amounts of external overt aid like the National Endowment for Democracy, this was an essential lifeline for a democratic opposition movement in Eastern Europe and what's probably most important is that solidarity becomes the government in Poland so uh, as communism collapses. So probably no better example of that effectiveness than, than that last part. Bang for the buck, you know, the, the, the kind of soft-ish power uh, going to effect. It, it, here's a clear case uh, where it has big impact. Uh, Seth, let, let's migrate a bit uh, to today. And here we are, history in many respects is rhyming and, and, and not for the good. We have autocratic uh, regimes, uh, China, of course, uh, Iran, Russia, certainly in the case of Hong Kong, it's a great example, tragic example, where you have the Chinese Communist Party working to close that society. Uh, it's been the greatest assault on freedom in this in this century so far, in my view, um, save perhaps what's going on in Ukraine right now. Could we envision a QR helpful for the 21st century? In other words, you're talking about printers and videotapes and, you know, we're talking before the things that seem kind of pedestrian to us and innocuous. That stuff doesn't work today. We're in the digital age. Could you envision a QR helpful for the 21st century? Yeah, I think you know what it would look like. Obviously, would be very different. Um, there certainly is has been a lot of effort uh, within the U.S. government and its allies and partners to play defense. That is uh, to protect their uh, cyber systems, for example, from Russian GRU, uh, SVR, Chinese side MSS, Ministry of State Security activities to conduct cyber espionage, influence campaign disinformation. So lots of activities from these countries and uh, efforts by the U.S. to play defense, to, to limit them. What has been uh, less significant, and in my view, is a huge gap, actually, is offense. Uh, now, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, offensive military operations. Offense, in this case, with QR Helpful, was an offensive um, information campaign designed to help out, to, to help level the playing field in countries where where the governments were banning freedom of information. So we think of Russia or China, North Korea, Iran, and a number of others. Uh, those, those countries uh, are really antithetical to the Reagan principles and core US principles of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, capitalism, of democracy and the ability to choose leaders. 
And so what we what an offensive campaign along the lines of QR Helpful should be designed to do is to get information to populations that only have access to state-supported media enterprises. Now, that may mean you're, you're providing other ways to get information through satellite links or to provide uh, ways to get around uh, uh, restraints in right, the secure networks, the VPNs, or whatever the like is. But these are these yeah. are the, the uh, tools that you would kind of categorize as a, as offensive in terms of the st standpoint of helping those who are seeking it outside, you know, our, our sovereign territory. Absolutely, and 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 to provide assistance to those organizations within those countries that yeah. are trying to provide that kind of information. Whether and, it's the protest movement in Iran right now or the democracy movement, you know, the so-called, what was it, the umbrella uh, movement in, in Hong Kong, I think it's a missed opportunity that, and maybe we're doing it, I don't know, but my sense is uh, that was a missed opportunity not giving support to those who were seeking it. Even recently, the large number of Chinese that were protesting against the COVID restrictions in China. I mean, I think what you see is in countries that 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 try to eliminate free speech, that don't have opportunities for individuals to elect their leaders, they want it eventually. Yeah. And so these are opportunities. Let's uh, move out, zoom out a little bit. And you've been uh, a leading analyst on Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, you've written a book called The Three Most Dangerous Men. This is subsequent to the book we're discussing today, Covert Action, profiling three uh, we call pioneers in irregular warfare, uh, Moscow, Beijing, and Tehran. The one I want to focus on is the individuals in the news today, and that is Russian chief of staff until perhaps today or time of this recording, uh, Gerasimov. I'm perhaps mispronouncing his name, but tell us about uh, this Russian general, kind of, and his the news perhaps that he's moving from Moscow, serving as kind of the 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 senior military person supporting Vladimir Putin, to now perhaps perhaps leading the battle, uh, being in the battlefield uh, in Russia's assault on Ukraine. Valerie Grasmov is an interesting individual, chief of the army staff. Uh, probably the single most important influential military thinker uh, over the last several decades within Russia. What's interesting about his career is uh, he was in Poland during QR Helpful, the Reagan program. He then, uh, among other places, uh, traveled to uh, the Baltic states where uh, he commanded forces and had to withdraw them as the Soviet Union collapsed and then, uh, among other things, commanded forces in Chechnya, where the uh, Russians were conducting combat operations against Chechen separatists. So has has been involved in a range of uh, of operations. But Grasimov has been a very notable student of the United States. He has watched the U.S. operate in the Baltics, sorry, the Balkans, in Kosovo and Bosnia, in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Libya. And um, and and has designed, uh, really from about 2014 on, a an effort to try to build, rebuild Russian power. So we saw a little bit of that in the taking of Crimea without really resorting to force. We saw it with uh, 2014 when the Russians get engaged in 
in an insurgency in eastern Ukraine supporting the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk militia forces. What's not clear is to what degree Gerasimov supports the, in, the conventional invasion in February of 2022, but he's stuck with it. Uh, Putin definitely supported it. Now Gerasimov is, uh, is in charge of the war in Ukraine. The challenge, of course, is that the Russian army in particular has proven itself to be a failed army, can't conduct combined arms operations. Uh, it's it's uh, military forces, the soldiers on the ground are being churned through, the morale is low, uh, drunkenness is high, corruption is high. So how anybody, including Grasimov, is going to be able to stop the bleeding within the Ukrainian army, I mean, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. is going to be a very tall order. Fascinating. And, and- Knowing the man and knowing that you studied him both in terms of his study of the United States and also through the lens of irregular warfare, would you anticipate that he's going to try to pursue an entirely different approach, dispense with the conventional approach, and and adopt certain you know, operational approaches, tactics that one would associate with irregular warfare, which you know is 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 the policy you know language of of you know, in this gray zone without the force on force in a conventional way? I would expect that uh, that the Russians are kind of a very hard time fighting and winning a conventional war in Ukraine. Uh, they've lost territory in Kharkiv. They've lost it in Kherson. They've lost it in uh, Luhansk, Oblasts. Uh, I think they're likely to lose more territory so I think what Grasimov is likely to do, and it's really his forte anyway, is to uh, start resorting to more irregular means, more activity from uh, militias operating in Ukraine, more activity from uh, the Wagner Group and private military companies, uh, prob- uh, possibly engaging in subversive or sabotage operations. We've seen a little bit of targeting of gas uh, uh, pipelines. The infrastructure, yep. Yeah, so I think we'll see more of that, maybe offensive cyber operations, uh, as the Russians start to look at other ways that they can conduct uh, influence campaigns. They'll kind of break the will of the Ukrainians and and terrorize them is generally what the irregular warfare approach uh, would deliver as opposed to just moving the battle line through conventional forces rolling Exactly. Dr. Seth Jones, before we let you go, uh, we got to... Get your take on uh, the Reagan lightning round. And this is where we ask all our guests to share with us their favorite book on President Reagan, uh, their favorite Reagan speech, and their favorite Reagan quote. You've been a fantastic guest today, giving us insight onto a side of President Reagan we hadn't ex- previously explored, which is uh, use of the intelligence community and specifically covert, covert operations. But uh, give us your, your lightning round picks. All right. My favorite book about Reagan, The Reagan Diaries. Great uh, inside uh, understanding and appreciation of what the president was going through on a day-by-day basis. Which you cite regularly in in, in the book. Which I cite regularly, exactly. (laughs) Uh, I I actually have it sitting on my desk at home, right by uh, both volumes, right behind my my desk. It's a source of daily inspiration. Uh, Favorite speech by Reagan, January 11th, 1989, sitting at his desk in the Oval Office, final address to the nation. It's just a city on the hill, wonderful example of strategic vision and uh, an execution of the course of his presidency. My favorite quote actually doesn't come from Reagan himself. It's July 17th, 2017. 
It's by the Polish president, Lech Kaczynski, in, at the Reagan Library, who gives Reagan the uh, highest order, uh, uh, the highest honor of Poland, the Order of the White Eagle. And he says, uh, when for the first time there was almost certainty that the Russians would intervene in Poland, Ronald Reagan had only been elected president. Uh, he had not assumed office yet, but it was known he would do it. And then he just goes on to talk about how Reagan's fortitude in supporting Poland at that at that element of need was critical to the uh, formation of democracy in the country. So uh, really a tribute to what Reagan did in the context that we talked about today. Nancy Reagan was there uh, to accept the, uh, the order, but at that point, uh, the president had passed on. Dr. Seth Jones, author of A Covert Action, defense, military expert, and uh, noted author. We're grateful for you joining us today. Thank you very much, Roger. Really appreciate everything you and the Reagan Institute are doing. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.